Well, it's good to be together this morning. As you might know, today is Reformation Sunday. And today we're going to do something that we often do on Reformation Sunday is open the pages of church history and hear from someone from history past about how they influence our life today. Now, if you come to Highland regularly, you know that you hear biblical exegetical teaching week in and week out. So what we're doing this morning is a little bit of a break from that, but we believe that it's important to understand those who've gone before us. So today, we're going to turn the page back to the 1500s and hear from a man named Miles Coverdale. He's going to talk a little bit about his life and ministry, but he's going to spend most of his time talking about one of his contemporaries, William Tyndale. Here's Miles Coverdale. Good morning. My name is Miles Coverdale, and I've come forward in time from the 1500s. I suspect that most of you have no idea who Miles Coverdale is. Well, I was the first one to translate the Bible into English where the Bible was legal, complete, and printed. Now, one of my benefactors, the one that actually made my Bible legal, was none other than Henry VIII. You know Henry VIII. Henry VIII, I am, I am. Henry VIII, I am. That's the dude. He's a bad player. Now, if you're in the business of Bible and theology, probably the last person you want recommending your work is Henry VIII. Although he was actually a theological giant, he was a moral mess, an ethical mess. What you may or may not know about Henry VIII is that he had three known illicit lovers. In addition to that, he had six wives. Oh, to be a wife of Henry VIII makes you a queen for a day or three. You know how it went. He divorced two of his wives. He took the noggin off of two of his wives. One died of natural causes, and one survived him. Really, the last person you want recommending your translation is Henry VIII. Now, if you are an astute historian, and probably some of you are, you may push back a little bit on how I opened up. You may say, well, Miles, your translation nicknamed the Miles Coverdale Bible, aren't historians colorful? Your translation was not the first one in English. And that's true. But that's not what I claimed, is it? I said that mine was the first complete, legal, printed Bible in English. The first Bible in English was by John Wycliffe. He translated the entire Bible and released it in 1382 and died in 1384. 
but it wasn't legal. It was complete. And it was not printed. He's 68 years before the Gutenberg printing press of 1450. So if you own a John Wycliffe Bible, and about 250 of them have made their way into your era, then you've got a treasure. The last one really to come up in auction was in 2016, and it fetched $1.7 million. You can retire on that kind of stuff, if you know what I mean. But again, his wasn't legal. It wasn't printed. After his death, his followers, the Lollards, they kind of improved upon it. But again, we have a handwritten Bible, which makes it exceptionally rare. But I'm not here today to talk about myself, Myers Coverdale. That would be rather boring. And I'm really not here to talk about John Wycliffe. I understand that the pastor of this joint dressed up as John Wycliffe a few years ago. What does he think? It's Halloween or something? Kind of embarrassing. Now, today I want to talk about a man named William Tyndale. William Tyndale doesn't give us a complete Bible. He gives us a complete New Testament, the Pentateuch, Joshua and Judges, and the Minor Prophets. And his isn't legal by any means, but it will be the first Bible in English printed. William Tyndale was in every way a brilliant man. Now I have the third translation. It's the Coverdale Bible. I need to tell you that 72% of the legal Coverdale Bible is word for word the Tyndale Bible. We call that research. Now if it had been 73%, we'd call it plagiarism, but it was only 72%, so it was research. Understand that in the time period that William Tyndale and I, Miles Coverdale, lived, it was a difficult time within the Reformation. It's a time period where it's hard to be a Christ follower. It's hard to be a Catholic. It's hard to be a Protestant. It's hard to be Reformed. It's hard to be somebody who is Arminian. It's just hard because a lot of people are gunning for you. Let me just give you an idea of the period of time. Now, it is about 200 years leading up to October 31st, 1517, that the Reformation really begins. But historians always point to that October 31, 1517, where we have a scholar. He's a church insider. He's not looking to split the church. He's a monk. He's a priest. He's a professor of sacred theology at the University of Wittenberg. He's been studying and teaching the book of Romans, the book of Galatians. His name is Dr. Martin Luther. And he writes 95 theses. A number of those theses are concerns he has with the church. But understand, he doesn't want to split the church. Not at all. He writes in Latin. That's the language of the scholars. And then he puts it on like an internet chat room type thing for scholars. He nails it to the Wettenberg church door, 
where scholars will come by and cross out and add and write little notes, all in Latin. His desire is to improve the universal church. We don't have Catholic, we don't have Protestant. We have the Western universal church. He wants to improve it, not divide it. But you know what happens. He puts it up in Latin and someone translates it into German. And then they translate it into Italian and Spanish. And pretty soon it goes across Europe. And it turns out that his concerns are also the concerns of many within Europe. And so the protest, that's what Protestant means, the protest formally begins and it becomes irretractable. Now you may ask, what was so wrong with what was going on in the church? It's really several hundred years. But I want to talk just a little bit about one pope. Now we're during the Renaissance. We'll call the Renaissance 1400 to 1600. Some would say 1350 to 1650, whatever. But the Renaissance is the Enlightenment. It's where people become literate once again. And yet the church is not necessarily leading the way. Now up to this point of 1517, there isn't Catholic or Protestant. There's just one Western church. And there have been great popes. Don't deny it. And there have been ungodly popes. Don't deny it. Well, the pope I want to talk about, Radigo Borgia, is a particularly ungodly pope. He will buy the papacy for four mule loads of silver, and he will reign from 1492 to 1503. He will take on the papal name Alexander VI. Now, Alexander VI loved to parade his children in front of the populace. Now, that probably should have stopped you right there. Are popes supposed to have children? Well, spiritual ones, but he had physical ones and quite a few. How many? I really don't know. I'll tell you about his famous mistress, Venosa. Venosa bears him three sons and a daughter. One of those sons he appoints as Bishop of Valencia. Bishop is pretty high fluting at age 17. Another one of his sons, Giovanni, he gives a red cap to. That makes him a cardinal. That's like really high empowerment. But that's only one mistress. He has 10. And he bears sons by no less than five mistresses, perhaps more. He is in every way an immoral man. My next statement I can't tell you is true, but I can tell you that all the historians of his day say it is true, that he actually bore a child from his illegitimate daughter. This is a particularly corrupt man. Some of you know the name Machiavelli. Perhaps uh, you know Machiavelli because when you were in college, you took uh, a course perhaps on ethics, and you were made to read Machiavelli's The Prince. Well, Machiavelli is a contemporary 
of Alexander VI, also a contemporary of Miles Coverdale. So Machiavelli talks about Alexander VI, and he says that he was a con man, and he lived for the con. Now, if you have read Machiavelli's The Prince, you know that it is a satire on ruthless power. And you have to understand it's a satire because he's not actually suggesting that ruthless power is how you ought to lead. It's just an observation of how many are leading. And if you've read The Prince, you know that one of the individuals he names of ruthless power is none other than Alexander VI. This is the climate to which a William Tyndale grows up. William Tyndale is a young man who is going to die at age 42. He is going to be martyred for his faith. William Tyndale is a guy who, as a young boy, was an intellectual prodigy. In every way, he was a brilliant mind. He lived in England on the English-Welsh border. And his parents seemed to be individuals of average, average D. I mean, there's nothing special about his parents. But they have this brilliant son. And they are very religious individuals. They're very much a part of the universal church. And so whenever priests are traveling through their towns, they would invite the priests over to sit at the dinner table and their young son, not precocious but brilliant, would ask theological and biblical questions. And understand that we are in the Renaissance, the Enlightenment. People are now being educated. And that was true within the church. But it wasn't true in rural society. And so many of these traveling priests in the rural areas would come and they would stay with the Tyndale family and young William would ask them questions, theological, biblical questions. And he was appalled even as a young boy because the priests were illiterate in the rural areas. Now you might ask, what does an illiterate priest do on a Sunday morning? Well, he has memorized two or three homilies in Latin and he doesn't know Latin. And he speaks the Latin homily to a congregation that doesn't know Latin. And he kind of rotates it every couple weeks. And so nobody is impacted by the word of God. And William Tyndale has this vision in his mind. Psalm 119, 97. Oh, how I love your laws. I meditate on them day and night. But how can you meditate on the law of God if it's not in your language? How can you meditate on the law of God if some of the rural priests are illiterate and they're teaching in Latin and you don't know Latin? He believes in Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And he wants to bring forth the light. Now as a young boy, he comes up with this, this statement. It's a historical statement that has come down to us. And this is what William Tyndale says. He says, if the Lord tarries long, the plow boy 
will know more of Scripture than these. Referring to the priests that sat at his parents' table. And that becomes his life work. Now you might push back. You might ask a legitimate question. You might say this. If John Wycliffe has already given us the Bible in English, why do we need William Tyndale? It's a great question, but understand that John Wycliffe is 68 years before the Gutenberg printing press. So if you have a Bible, it's rather rare. You don't have too many Bibles around. 250 have come forth to this day, but they're rather rare. Besides that, they're utterly illegal. So if you have a Bible, you have to keep it hidden. So the average plow boy doesn't have the word of God, and the average person, the church would call you dull, D-U-L-L. Sorry, it's just what they called you. You are not capable of having the word of God in your language, in your hand, to understand it. And Tyndale believed otherwise. And so he decided that he would set out and he would translate the Bible into English. Now understand how illegal this is. In the year 1519, Tyndale will release his Bible in 1526. In the year 1519, this is two years after we have the split between the universal church and the protesters because that's what Protestant means. The universal church wants to make sure you, I, we dull people understand that the Bible is not to be in the language of commoners. And so on one day they arrest a woman and they arrest six men. And they burn all seven at the stake. This is a very public burning. A murder of seven individuals. And what was their crime? Well, you would expect it would be that they translated the Bible into English. No. You would expect that perhaps they got a hold of an English Bible. And they dared to share it with someone else. No. Their crime was that they dared to teach their own children the Ten Commandments and the Lord's Prayer in English. And for that crime, all seven were burned at the stake. Knowing this, William Tyndale decided that his life work would be to translate the Bible. First came his preparation. We don't know much about William Tyndale's upbringing. I've already told you that he lived on the Welsh-English border. He was English-speaking naturally. His family was of average origin, but he was brilliant, a prodigy. And so by age 20, by age 20, he had already earned a bachelor and a master's degree from Oxford. He had earned these degrees in Bible and sacred theology as well as language. He then left Oxford and went over to Cambridge and he studied under Erasmus, the greatest humanist of his day. And by age 22, this man, William Tyndale, at a scholarly level, could speak, write, and read English, French, German, 
Spanish, Italian. He could read and write at a scholarly level, Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. If you're counting, that's eight languages at a scholarly level by age 22. Beyond that, he knew other languages at a common level. Now I ask you, how many languages can you read and write and speak at a scholarly level? Oh, I suppose a few of you, maybe three or four. Most one or two. And I've heard some of you speak, it would be zero. Just keeping it real. But he could, at a scholarly level, interact at eight languages. Feeling that it was now time to translate the Bible into English. He knew he had to leave England. England was just too dangerous a place. So he left the island of his birth, the island that he loves, England and Wales and Scotland and Ireland, and he went to the mainland. Now, if you're going to go to the mainland to translate the Bible, where are you going to go? Obviously, you're going to go to the Germanic states. It's not yet Germany. It won't be Germany until 1871, but you have the Germanic states and depending on who is ruling which state, it can be quite safe to translate the Bible. So he goes to Cologne. And in Cologne, he begins to translate the Bible. He has a couple of assistants, and he gets most of the way through the New Testament and some of the Old Testament. And then one of his assistants goes out one night, has a little too much liquid courage, goes to a pub, has a couple pints too many, and he begins to tell everyone that they have almost translated the Bible into English. Immediately, the authorities are called, and William Tyndale escapes with his life, and only one or two copies, neither of which have existed today. And he has to relocate. So if you're going to relocate and you're going to go to the Germanic tribe and you need to be safe in order to translate the Bible, where are you going to go? You're going to go to Worms. Some of you read Worms. Worms is what you put on a hook when you go fishing. It's Worms. And why are you going to go there? Because the protector of Worms is very willing to have the Reformation in his land. You remember Worms. It's the place where Dr. Martin Luther will be condemned. He will have a trial in Worms. You remember that Dr. Luther had nailed those 95 theses to the Wittenberg church door. Not all of them are condemning. Not all of them are even suggestions. Some of them are quite encouraging of the universal church. But enough of them are problematic that the Pope, Pope Leo X, he declares that they are anathema. In fact, he makes a statement that they are scandalous, heretical, and blasphemous to the common ear. He condemns 41 of the 95 theses. I'd like to know which 41, because he never told us which 41. You have to guess. And then he spoke from the throne. If you're a pope and you speak from St. Peter's throne, it's called a papal bull from Bulla, B-U-L-L-A. It's a seal. And then what you say is separate from scripture, but equal to scripture. 
and he wrote a papal bull against Martin Luther. The papal bull is exerge domine, arise, O Lord, in which the Pope declares that Luther is like a boar, not like your pastor, B-O-A-R, a boar in the Lord's vineyard. And he gives Luther 60 days to recant. But of course, Luther will not recant. He doesn't recant. Well, it is there in Worms that William Tyndale produces his Bible. Again, it's the New Testament. It's the Pentateuch. It's Joshua and Judges. It's the Minor Prophets. And it's the first Bible in the English language that will be printed. And he will print no less than 6,000 copies of Tyndale 1.0. And they are sent back to England. And you can imagine what's going on with these 6,000 copies. Suddenly the plow boy can now read the word of God in his own language and can understand what God is saying. Some of you have been to London. If so, you've been perhaps to St. Paul's Cathedral. It's the second largest physical edifice in the Christian world. And the bishop is Bishop Tunstall. Some of you know of the Archbishop of Canterbury. That would be William Warham. And the bishop and the Archbishop begin to buy up copies of William Tyndale's Bibles. And you say, praise the Lord, pew Bibles. No, no, no. When they would buy a copy, they would publicly burn it on the steps, warning everyone that the Bible is illegal in the English language. The problem is they've got 6,000 of them. Now, William kept a few back with him in Varms, and he's now working on the William Tyndale Bible 2.0. And he's running out of money. And so he thinks to himself, these guys are buying up copies of Tyndale 1.0. So he would send friends in disguise to sell them copies of 1.0 at exorbitant prices so that he could print 2.0. He's improving his understanding of the Bible. Now understand what he does. He has access to Hebrew and Greek manuscripts. So it's a real translation and he's translating scripture. When he is done, he gets a copy of St. Jerome's Latin Vulgate 384 to 404. And he compares his translation to the Latin Vulgate because he knows Latin. Because he's a personal friend of Erasmus, the greatest humanist who has also composed a compendium of Greek versions in 1522. He reads all those versions and compares it to his English translation. And he gets a copy of Dr. Luther's German translation of 1534. And he compares his English translation to the German translation. Who has the ability to do that? William Tyndale. And so he gives us a remarkable, utterly remarkable Bible. Now, I've already told you that I did research. I 
just borrowed research, 72% of the word for word for the Tyndale translation. Some of you have a King James. Maybe you have a King James here today. The King James Version is a true translation. They were looking at the Textus Recepticus manuscripts, good manuscripts. You remember James I wanted a new Bible in the English language in 1611. So he gathered a number of world-class scholars to give us a new Bible. The King James Bible, which is 92% Tyndale's Bible. Now that's plagiarism. 72% research, 92% utter plagiarism. These are world-class scholars who see great work. And so they utilize Tyndale's Bible. 1952. We are 425 years from Tyndale's Bible. And the Revised Standard Version Committee of world-class scholars will use no less than three out of four, probably four out of five, exact words from the Tyndale Bible. 425 years later, world-class scholars are still using the Tyndale Bible as a model of the English translation. That's how competent, scholarly, and readable the William Tyndale Bible was and is. Well, because of that, he attracted a great deal of attention. Not all of it wanted. The universal church had declared that translating the Bible was anathema, a capital offense, and they were not going to let a man like William Tyndale escape. And so they hired a man down on his lock named Henry Phillips. They essentially treated him like their own Judas Iscariot, paying him their 30 pieces of silver to befriend William Tyndale, and then in Antwerp to walk him down a road that had no exits, and at the end, he was arrested. He was immediately taken to the castle Vilvoord in Brussels, Belgium. Then he was put in prison. Now, you probably know that Brussels, Belgium, is a cold place, especially in winter. He will remain there for 18 months. He does not have proper clothing. He doesn't have a blanket. He almost dies of hypothermia. And finally then he is put on trial after 18 months, but he's not allowed to speak. What was he accused of? First and foremost, he was accused of daring to translate the Bible into the English language to put the Bible in the hands of dull people, to have the plow boy have access to the word of God, guilty as charged. Second, he was charged with daring to declare that all of us, every one of us, are sinners by birth and sinners by action. Isn't that what David said in Psalm 51? He said he was conceived in sin, not referring to the intimacy of his parents. He's referring to Romans 5, 12, where, where Paul will spell it out. That you and I were in Adam, and when Adam ate the forbidden fruit, 
God credited his sin to us because God knows with his perfect knowledge that had we been in the Garden of Eden, we would have done exactly what Adam did. I would have eaten it a couple days earlier. You a couple days later, we're all guilty. Original sin. In addition to that, we are sinners by action. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. And 1 John 1.8 says, If we claim that we have no sin, we are liars, and the truth is not in us. So that was the second charge against him. The third charge was that he dared to say that salvation is only solely in Christ. Solus Christus, Christ alone. That salvation is not in the church, it's in Christ. Isn't that what Acts 4, 12 says? Call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. The fourth charge against him is he believed in sola fide and sola gratia, faith alone in God's grace alone. Isn't that what Romans 10, 9 and 10 says? If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, then we will be saved. For with a heart one believes and is justified, and with a mouth one confesses and is saved. Fifth, he was charged with denying the existence of purgatory. Purgatory is never mentioned or suggested in the Bible. In fact, it's antithetical to what Scripture says. Hebrews 9.27 says this, It is appointed for man to die once, and after that the judgment. If you know Christ, you go to heaven for eternity. If you do not know Christ, you spend eternity separated from God in hell. But if you know Christ, Romans 8.1 says, There is now no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus, purgatory is 1,902,000 on average years of condemnation. It's an anti-biblical concept. And finally, he was charged with declaring that Scripture alone is the final authority rather than Scripture and church dogma. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 all scripture is inspired by God and it is profitable for correction, for reproof, for training in righteousness that the person of God may be thoroughly equipped for good works. He was condemned to death and for reasons historically unknown, he was then sent back to the castle billboard for two more months. After that, he was released. He was put on a public spectacle. First, they, they took a knife and they scraped off the skin because he had had anointing oils as a priest. They wanted the oils gone. And then they put a chalice in one hand and the bread in the other and they ripped it from him. He's no longer worthy to give the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper. They ripped his priestly vestments from him and dressed him in commoner's clothes. And eventually then, he was allowed to give one word and he looked up to heaven and he said, Lord, 
open the eyes of the king of England. And he was strangled to death and burned at the stake. As I think of William Tyndale, I think of a man who is not afraid of culture. He's not afraid of a canceled culture that makes Christ followers mute when it comes to ethics and morality. He's a man that is not ashamed of the gospel. He's a man that lived his life for the Lord. He's a man that understood Matthew 10, verse 28. Do not be afraid of the one who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of him who can kill the body and the soul in hell. In other words, Christ follower, live for Christ, serve Christ, honor Christ, make Christ the center of your life. That's William Tyndale. The second thing I think of with William Tyndale is that he was not going to waste his life. He was going to spend his life. He was going to invest his life. He was going to live his life for the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor for God is never in vain. Romans 12, 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. Don't waste your life. Spend your life. Invest your life. Live for the king. Evaluate what parts of your life are for the Lord. Is it enough? Has it been enough? Will it be enough? Live for Jesus as I trust many of you do. William Tyndale, live for Jesus. And finally, when I think of William Tyndale, I think of a man who wanted the plow boy to have the light of the gospel who didn't believe that you, I, we were too dull to have the word of God in our own language, that we could study the word, love the word, obey the word, know this Jesus of whom the word proclaims. I think of Psalm 119, 97 and following. Oh, how I love your laws. I meditate on it night and day. Your laws Make me wiser than my enemies, for they are always with me. Your commandments give me more understanding than my teachers, for they are ever with me. I have more insight than the aged, because I obey your precepts. He lived out James chapter 1, 22. Do not be a hearer of the word only, and thus deceive yourself, be a doer as well. When I think of William Tyndale, I think of a man who wants the word of God in our hands, who wants us to study 
the word of God, to worship God, to love God, not to waste our lives, but to expend our lives for the kingdom. Be a William Tyndale.